My uh, eldest child is at the stage where she will sometimes do the but why thing. If you're a parent, you might be there or you might remember it. Clean your teeth, but why? So your breath doesn't stink, but why? So that people will talk to you, but why? So that you'll have friends, but why? So that you won't die alone, but why? So Because dying alone is a tragedy, but why? Because I said so, but why just do it? Or you can't go to the fun thing we've got planned tomorrow. Sort of uh, a, a rough version of how these things go. Perhaps that's familiar to you. We like to know why, don't we? Why is it that we're being told we should do something? And what we have here is Paul providing both instruction to Titus about the things he is to teach uh, the Christians in Crete and the reason why he's to teach them those things. But why? And we see it in verse 11. The grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. That's the but why. That's, that's what's going on in this letter. Live like this because of what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. But before we unpack that, let's go right back to the top. If you weren't here last week, we've started this three-week series looking at the letter to Titus, and we know that Titus has been left on the island of Crete by Paul uh, to help the church as it grows, to establish local leadership uh, for the church in, in the various places that it meets around the island, and Titus, uh, as the, the leader in charge, uh, is called to do that uh, in, in accordance with the, the gospel and the, the teaching that Paul has given him about Jesus. Paul is also calling Titus, as he goes about this task, to live differently and to find leaders who are different, uh, and this is a, to a make them appear different from those who are going around with false teaching, seeking self-gain. And he says of them in verse 16 of chapter 1, if you have a look there, they claim to know God, but by their actions deny him. This is the false teachers. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. But Titus, as he teaches, that's the, but you, however, verse 1 of our reading today, you, however, mustn't be like that. You must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. What is sound doctrine? Well, the word we have there that is translated for sound is literally uh, the word that is also used to describe uh, healthy or wholesome. You are to teach what is appropriate to healthy or wholesome doctrinal beliefs versus a, a sick or a partial theology, which is what the false teachers are, de uh, are delivering to the church. And this healthy, wholesome theology, this sound doctrine, is a theology which is good for the whole person, which impacts not just their minds, which is what we tend to think of when we think of sound doctrine, but which impacts their entire lives. Healthy, wholesome theology, good, sound doctrine, isn't just a brain thing, it's a heart thing that transforms our lives. 
And it's here that Paul goes next, teaching in verses 2 through 10, uh, the kind of life that those who are seeking to live out their sound theology will live, uh, how they will live ethically as Christians. And he explains the why in verses 11 to 14. Now, it's a bit unusual for Paul because normally, if you think of his other letters in the Bible to the churches, he usually goes the other way. He'll usually say, this is the gospel, therefore you should live like this. But today, in this letter, and perhaps it's because he's writing to a leader, I'm not really sure why, he goes the other way. Uh, Teach whatever's according to sound doctrine. This is some of the things. Why? Because of the gospel. And Paul's concern here for the church is that they live according, uh, they live out their gospel faith, they live out their belief and trust in Jesus uh, in their most intimate relationships. He's concerned with how households live together. We all know, don't we, that when we leave our homes, we put on our best faces. All all of us families here today, we're all happy and smiling and showing off our smiley socks that we got. We're not talking about the couple of arguments that we might have had to have in order to get the children to sit down uh, in order for us to uh, have a nice breakfast together. We put on our best face when we get to church. Think about this. When was the last time you yelled at your spouse in the supermarket versus in your house when there was no one else around. When we go outside of our homes, we like to do the right thing. But it's how we live when no one else is around or only those who, who kind of we, we, we know the best that, that really shows how deeply into our hearts and minds and life this thing called the gospel has got, or how much deeper it needs to go. The Christian faith hits home in the home. How you are in private is the best reflection of the work the Holy Spirit is doing and needs to continue to do to apply the gospel to your heart, to apply healthy, wholesome doctrine to all of your life. And so Paul knows this and he gives instructions for living together in households. Their households were a little bit bigger than ours today. Nonetheless, that's that context, intimate relationships. And so he goes through, doesn't he, how they should live. And he starts with the older men. So listen up, gentlemen. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled and sound in faith, in love and endurance, Titus 2 verse 2. John Stott uh, says that you can sum these instructions up here as an exhortation to live lives of dignity and respect. Paul's calling for the older men to have a certain sense of gravitas to them. And he calls them particularly to excel in faith, that is, in trusting God, in love, that is, in putting others first and being men of service, and in endurance, 
keeping on keeping on in the face of suffering and persecution. Isn't that an awesome picture of old men, whatever age brackets you want to place around that, being these men who the whole church and your whole family look up to because they're excelling in trusting God, in serving others and in just keeping on keeping on no matter how difficult things have been. He moves to the older women next. Likewise, verse 3, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children. Uh, of course, uh, part of what Paul is doing here is uh, instructing the Christians how to live differently in their contexts. But what we see here is a call for reverence. If uh, uh, the, the man was called to, to, to this sort of gravitas as they sought to live out their face, here we have a call to reverence, which is the same word that was used for uh, priestesses. And I think what Paul is saying here is uh, live the kind of life where the presence of God permeates from your very pores. Be the presence of God wherever you go and help those who are coming behind you as they seek to figure out what it means to follow Jesus in their context. It's fascinating to me that he tells them to not be slanderers or addicted to much wine. Uh, as I was preparing this sermon, I literally just read an article about um, uh, sort of older mummy bloggers, which is a thing, uh, and their uh, realisation this woman was having that all she did basically was talk nastily about other people with her friends whilst drinking. And, and that was basically how she gets through the day. Uh, and uh, then I read another article uh, about uh, the, the trap that uh, mums, in particular, this article was talking about, can fall into, uh, uh, but it's not just mums, obviously, uh, of the glass of wine every night once the kids are in bed as, a, as the way to cope. 2,000 years later, the issues presenting are much the same. But as Christians, we're called to be different. And Paul here calls the older women to be the presence of God in their homes, to inspire others to be good wives and good mothers, good women in whatever context they find themselves in. And he moves then to the younger woman, who the older women are to encourage Urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, verse 4, verse 5, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, to be subject to the husband so that no one will malign the word of God. The encouragement here is that the older women are getting alongside the younger women. And so I just thought I'd pose that as a question for you all. Are you doing that? If you... Uh, now, I'm not going to categorise you. You can be a younger woman or an older woman. It's up to you. You figure out where you belong. 
But regardless, are you getting alongside those who are younger than you and helping them? I'm not going to sit down and pair you up. But let me encourage you to take Paul's word seriously. That the faith is meant to be modelled and passed on generationally. The younger woman, Paul says, are to be self-controlled, pure and busy at home. Now, this is not a command for all time that women shouldn't leave their homes, as it has been interpreted sometimes. But rather, it's just a command uh, against idleness in the context that women found themselves in, in Crete, which tended to be in the home. But for us today, the, 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 the command is the same. It's, it's, it's don't be lazy, don't just sponge off others, but get to work in a way that is kind and loving. And then he says uh, for them to be subject to their husbands, which is not a command to be less than their husbands, but it's a command that in the way that they live out their faith, they will cause their husbands to uh, grow in their faith. It's a, it's, a, it's a call to the wife to help the husband grow in their faith. And I think sometime in the future, a whole separate sermon is required on what it is what being subject to your husband means for us today. He moves on to young men and he gives them one thing which either you can take as Paul thinking women need to have a lot more to work on or men are so far gone we just need one thing because it's all we can handle. And I think I'm going to go with that version. Encourage the young men to be self-controlled, verse 6. One thing to work on, and yet it impacts every part of their life. Let me read a little bit from John Stott again. Paul is thinking of the control, self-control, of temper and tongue, of ambition and greed, and of bodily appetites, including sexual urges, so that the Christian young man remains committed to the unalterable Christian standard of chastity before marriage and fidelity after it. Be self-controlled. Control your temper, control your tongue, control your ambition, control your greed. Think of others before yourself. Control your sexual urges. That is massively countercultural living, isn't it? That this world is not all about you getting what you want when you want it, however, whatever it costs, and pushing whoever gets in the way out of the way. No. Younger men are to be self-controlled. And the older men have a role to come alongside and encourage the younger men to do this. It's Titus's role first, but no doubt he had some help from the other elders and leaders that he appointed. And the, it's an encouragement there, you see, to self-control. That is, it wasn't a, uh, a, a um, look down on the young men when they fail, but encourage them as they figure it out. Grace-based self-control. Verses 7 and 8. Paul moves to giving Titus some examples, uh, uh, some instructions on how he should live as the leader. 
And essentially he says, don't be a hypocrite and practice what you preach. And as you lead, be a model that others can copy, both in your behaviour and in your teaching of this sound doctrine. That is, be a leader and a man of integrity because this is what we're trying to get the other men to be. And then he moves to slaves, verses 9 and 10. And it's uh, one of those moments where you go, why does he just tell slaves to keep being slaves? And again, this is another sermon for another... I need to start a list of times the Bible raises um, slightly controversial things that require whole sermons in themselves and then we can do that as a series. But let me just say that slavery was commonplace in the first century and it was different to to the nature of the slave trade that we think of when we hear the word. That doesn't make it good and it wasn't good. But what Paul, I think, is doing here is actually arguing for slaves to live in such a way that the gospel would bring an end to that individual slavery. Hear me out. He doesn't live in a democracy where he can go and protest on the side of the road. He can't get himself elected to parliament. He lives in a dictatorship. Instead, he says, be an amazing slave. Be the best slave you can be and be that slave because of the gospel. Explain your faith if you get the chance and then they may too become a Christian so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive. And, as we'll see when we do Philemon in a couple of weeks, uh, if you're a slave owner and you're a Christian and you're a slave and you're a Christian, that massively changes the dynamic of the relationship. I think we could probably say that applying this today, the, the closest thing we can do is think about our role as workers, as employees, And we would say that Paul's instruction for us is no matter where we find ourselves and who our boss is, we should be great workers. Not just good at the job, but good humans who live out the gospel, who are reliable and trustworthy so that we make Jesus attractive to those who employ us. Why? Why live like this? Why be the kind of older man that Paul talks about? Why be the kind of woman that Paul talks about? Why be the kind of leader that he talks about or the kind of slave or worker that he talks about? Why is any of this worth it? Because of the gospel. For the grace of God, verse 11, has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very old, eager to do what is good. We live like this because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. He's come to bring us salvation. Paul says that in verse 11 and in verse 14. 
And we live like this and we're motivated to keep on living like this because Jesus not only came and brought salvation, but he will come again and bring all his promises to their final fulfilment in verse 13. The coming of Christ to save us and his return to bring all things to their fulfilment is the motivation for godly living. And Paul refers to the comings of Christ, both his first and second, as the grace of God, the grace of God revealed in Jesus. Uh, I'm on a diet at the moment, and uh, part of what motivates me, every time I go to the shops and I see that the Cadbury chocolate's on special, and I look at the block of snack chocolate, and uh, I think about how delicious a combination of pineapple and, and caramel is going to be. I think about the fact that I'm going to eat that whole block if I buy it, and that's going to be 1,200 calories, and I'm only allowed 1,500 in a day. And if I go over, I'm not going to get to my goal of weighing less than 100 kilos. And in some ways, the Christian life is like that. We, we have this future goal in mind, the glory of God, uh, the, the, the return of Christ. And one day we're going to live in that glory with Jesus forever in sinless perfection, in the new heavens and the new earth, in perfect relationship, in, in amazing worship that's never going to end. And given that future, and given what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, we press on. And we push on into the kind of life God has called us to. But we don't do it alone. Even better than going on a diet, God gives us the Holy Spirit, which prompts us and empowers us to avoid unhealthy and unwholesome acts and to live out our healthy, wholesome theology. It's all grace, the grace of God revealed in Jesus Christ, the grace of God to come when he returns and the grace of God here and now by his spirit as he empowers us to be transformed. God's amazing grace forms us, shapes us and transforms us as we seek to live a disciplined life. So let me say, as we uh, go from here today, don't go away like this. I'm an older man. I should try and be more temperate. So I'm going to go home and set some goals around temperance. And I'm going to work really hard at being temperate. Don't do that. Go home instead and consider the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Go home and sit with the fact that one day you're going to spend an eternity with Jesus because of what he's done for you. And then, as you're marvelling at his amazing grace, 
Then sit down and ask God by his spirit to show you how you should live in response to that marvellous and amazing grace. And God has given you some ideas here in Titus chapter 2 that he might want to help you as you seek to live out the kind of life he's calling you to. We're called to self-control, to all these things that Paul calls us here to in Titus, not in our own strength, but in the grace of God revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. So let's live in that and allow that to transform us.